You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney. I'm artistic director, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you this evening to the Uncommon Knowledge Lecture Series, which focuses on artists, their ongoing interests, and topics that inspire their art and their thinking. And this evening's lecture is presented by Gabrielle de Vetri, focusing on the stolen Picasso and activism in art. So to begin with, I'd like to acknowledge the Bunwurrung, traditional custodians and sovereign owners of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Gabrielle de Vietri as our guest speaker tonight. Her lecture promises to be particularly engaging, exploring the theft of Picasso's Weeping Woman from the National Gallery of Victoria in 1986 by the self-titled Australian Cultural Terrorists, or ACT, who demanded better state funding for the arts as a ransom for the painting's return. At the time, I was in Morocco, um, and I remember Picasso's Weeping Woman appearing on the front page of the local French newspaper when I was there, um, along with details of the heist, so it certainly made world news at the time. And if I'm not mistaken, also it led to the government acceding to the kidnappers' demands and there was actually some funding introduced for emerging artists. Through the frame of this audacious and still unsolved act of radical cultural activism, Gabrielle will explore forms of disobedience and dissent as a creative act, as well, as well as shedding light onto her own practice and the current work of the Artists' Committee. The Artists' Committee are an informal association of artists, filmmakers, curators, writers and others who make collaborative public work and activism around the intersection of politics, money, ethics, and culture. With the hashtag Artist Against Abuse, the committee has also been calling for an end to the abuse of refugees and people seeking asylum, as well as advocating for artists' rights within the art, art industry. Before I welcome our guest speaker tonight, I'd like to thank Starwood for Whiskey for creating a bespoke cocktail for us this evening in honor of Picasso. It's a variation on the Boulevardier, composed of starwood, salera, campari, and sweet vermouth topped with pomegranate and a red wine soda. Um, we also thank our presenting partner, um, the travel consultants Abercrombie and Kent, who offer unique adventures and vacations around the world for their much appreciated support of the lecture series. And we equally acknowledge City of Melbourne, MGC and CAPI, as well as our media partners, Saturday Paper, Triple R and Broadsheet. So tonight, it's a great pleasure to welcome and introduce Gabrielle de Vietri, a Melbourne-based artist well-known for her socially engaged and collaborative art practices. Gabrielle's work has taken the form of community events, interactive public performances, situational media actions, pedagogical systems, documents, invented languages, fictional histories, lectures, and gardens. Gabrielle is co-director with Will Foster of A Centre for Everything, an ongoing pedagogical experiment and curated series of politically engaged creative events. And she's also created significant works and commissions for galleries and museums in Melbourne and beyond, and recent commissions for Public Art Melbourne, Climb Art and ACCA, among others. So without further ado, please welcome Gabrielle. Thank you, Max, for that introduction, and thank you for having me here tonight, for inviting me, Annabelle, and thank you all for coming tonight. And I'm very sorry that if um, about the cancellation last month, I'm so glad to see you all again here this month. Um, I'd like to start by also acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, along with the Wurundjeri people. I pay respect to ancestors and elders, past, present, and future and extend that respect to Indigenous people here tonight. I acknowledge that the land on which I live and work has been looked after by millennia for, uh, by people of the Kulin Nation, and that their living culture has a unique role to play in the life of this region. I'm an uninvited visitor on this stolen land, and I stand here tonight with the intention of talking about theft, that of a painting, but I also acknowledge that there has been no greater theft than, or no more significant theft, rather, than that of this land from Indigenous people. And with that theft comes the theft of tools, of artefacts, of art and of culture, of stories, to destroy or display in glass cases and hushed spaces. 
the museifying of culture that attempts to present the past as incurably dead. The colonial mission of the museum is inextricably linked with theft. But today I will not be speaking of state-sanctioned theft, but the very opposite, the radical disruption of the gentle business of culture by artists who reclaim the politics of art. By celebrating one theft, I do not glorify or endorse the other. There is also an issue in the anti-institutional side of theft, though, the glorification of troublemaking from Ned Kelly to Crocodile Dundee has pervaded our recent Australian story. And so I also want to distinguish the theft of Picasso's Weeping Woman from the usual narratives of larrikinism that populate our colonial mythology. As a somewhat reformed kleptomaniac myself, I would like to ask you to consider the ways in which nuances of spectacle, of intention, of power and purpose that change the ethics of an act. The Australian larrikin stereotype is a profile of a fundamentally good person that tests the boundaries. This defiance of authorities, changing of rules, sailing close to the wind, born of a Wednesday and looking both ways for Sunday, skeptical, iconoclastic, larger than life. This attitude has been such a large part of our evolving national identity but its definition has shifted in subtle yet important ways from when it was first used to describe a reaction to corrupt and arbitrary authority in the convict era. The term now favours heroic individuals who stand out, usually white men, and become mythologised. Good blokes who murder their families. It seems to have more traction when excusing locker room banter than when celebrating organised disobedience. It lets fall away the roots of dissent, the politics of struggles, and the collectives that work for a better society. So with that in mind, and some connections in this introduction that are still unresolved, but tensions nonetheless, I hope to be able to use these stories to do justice to the object objectives and intentions of the people and groups I will speak of, to draw out the qualities of defiance that are principled, organized, and collective. So, the following is a collection of thoughts and ideas that have been gathered together from images, articles, conversations and interviews with various people. I want to take a moment to acknowledge the work and the research of the Artists Committee that has really influenced the shape of this talk. This story begins when I was two, so obviously I lay no claim to what happened. But I do place myself in the lineage of creative disruption that the events that I'm about to describe epitomize. So let's start in 1985. So in 1985, the National Gallery of Victoria, just two blocks from here, bought Picasso's Weeping Woman. I mean, this face is gonna haunt Melbourne for the next 100 years or more. That's Patrick McCackie, then the director of the NGV. And that was an extract from a short film made by Colin Cairns and Catherine Dyson um, a couple of, a decade ago. Does anyone know where the motif of the weeping woman originated from in Picasso's practice? You can shout out if you know. Guernica, yes. The motif originated from Guernica. Turn to the person next to you and tell them anything you know about Guernica. Okay, does anyone want to share a few uh, quick, quick points about what they know about Guernica? What's it a painting of? War, yep, the Spanish, the Spanish Civil War, yep. Um, and anything else? 
Yes, it was in the States for years, wasn't it? And then it, went, it was repatriated to Spain, yep. Um, okay, well, the weeping woman. And it was in the States because uh, Picasso didn't want to show it in Spain under Franco, yes. So the weeping woman originated in this painting in the left-hand corner. She's seen here a wretched mess calling out for her lost family, crying over her, her dead child lost to war. There she is. But the Picasso of this later, the, sorry, the weeping woman of this later painting was intended by Picasso as an image of universal human suffering. The National Gallery of Victoria paid a record sum for this painting, which they, they admitted it was an inferior version to the one held in the Tate Gallery. But they were so desperate to get their hands on a painting by Picasso because they didn't have one yet. And so they agreed to pay $1.6 million, the most that had ever been paid for a painting in Australia. But by the time they ended up paying it off, the exchange rate had shifted so much that they did end up paying $2 million for the painting. The Victorian public was not so pleased about paying this much for the garish colours of a woman in pain. And for some artists, the expenditure of state funding on a painting, as we say today, by a dead white man was a slap in the face. So not long after it was ceremoniously unveiled on the NGV walls, the weeping woman was removed in what has become one of Australia's greatest unsolved mysteries. Late one Saturday afternoon in 1986, it is speculated that three or so people, possibly artists, possibly homosexual, were just ordinary gallery goers contemplating the Brachs, the McZingers, the Clees and Delaunies. But as night fell, they didn't leave like the other visitors. There was no CCTV cameras, no fancy lasers, no infrared motion sensors, the guards had until then successfully unionized against the mechanization of their work. The three hid in the European section of the second floor until the doors were closed and the lights were off. Once the guards had passed by on their hourly rounds, <laughs> they emerged from the shadows with a purpose-made key that only staff had access to they removed the weeping woman from the wall. In its place, they left a registrar's card saying that the painting had been removed by the ACT. Now, no one knows where they actually slept that night, but the theory was that on Sunday morning, once the doors were open and the lights were on, they just left, concealed among the incoming crowds, with the painting under their arm and nobody bat an eyelid. It wasn't until Monday morning that anyone noticed that anything was awry. That morning, a journalist from The Age received a ransom note. Now, one of you will actually have, oh, note back then that postage cost 33 cents. One of you will have this ransom note under your chair. So if you could please check your chair. And if this ransom note is under your chair, please check the one next to you if it's uh, not, if it's not uh, occupied. If you have this ransom note, it's stuck under your chair. Aha. Uh -huh. Now, if you have this ransom note, would you kindly read it out? Or give it to the person next to you. Ransom letter. Attention, Ransom Matthews, NLA. We have stolen the Picasso from the National Gallery as a protest against the niggardly funding <laughs> Goodness. It's of not the fine related to a racist word. State okay. And against the clumsy, unimaginative stupidity of the administration 
and the distribution of that funding. Two conditions must be publicly agreed upon if the painting is to be returned. It's long. Shall I read the whole thing? Yes? <laughs> One, the minister must announce a commitment to increasing the funding of the arts by 10% in real terms over the next three years and must agree to appoint an independent committee to inquire into the mechanics of the funding of the arts with a view to releasing the money from its administration and making it available to artists. Two, the minister must announce a new annual prize for painting open to artists under 30 years of age. Five prizes of $5,000 are to be awarded. A fund is to be established to ensure that the real value of the prizes is maintained each year. The prize is to be called the Picasso Ransom. <laughs> because the Minister of the Arts is also the Minister of, also Minister of Plod. Police, I believe. Plod. We are allowing him a sporting seven days in which to try to have us arrested while he deliberates. <laughs> there will be no negotiation. At the end of seven days, if our demands have not been met, the painting will be destroyed and our campaign continue. Your very humble servants, Australian cultural terrorists. And there's a footnote. The age has agreed at the request of the police to omit 12 words from the published letter to enable police to identify hoaxes and to assist in their dealings with possible offenders. Thank you very much for reading that out. So naturally, the journalist called the gallery to see how true those claims were. Gallery staff rushed to the site of the theft and confirmed that it was in fact gone. And so began a wild chase, 16 days of speculations and accusations, frenzied raids across Melbourne and even interstate. It was a top story of the evening news and made it to newspapers across the world, even Morocco. It was a global embarrassment for the NGV. To make matters worse, in response to the theft, the gallery immediately introduced tough new rules for the security guards. They weren't going to be allowed to sit on stools anymore, but had to walk around constantly. They were not happy about this, and they went on strike. The gallery, <laughs> the gallery had to shut down for three days in the middle of it all while the painting was still at large. In an attempt to find the thieves, the Herald newspaper commissioned a handwriting expert to analyse the handwriting on the envelope. Before I tell you what they concluded, I'd like to know what you think. What kind of person are we dealing with here? What personality can you read from the handwriting on the ransom envelope? Does anyone have any thoughts? Written with a left hand when they're right-handed, okay? Intense, okay. Gender? Male, did I hear, male? Sexual, sexual orientation? Any mental illnesses? Can you read it in the, no? Angry, Angry? yeah. In a hurry? Under 30. Mm, detective. <laughs> so after an incredibly thorough analysis of the handwriting, the expert revealed that the writer was the following. Possibly homosexual, but of unknown gender a loner but not secretive, had low self-esteem and was moody and suffering depression and was very nervous and not elated about the theft. So if you're out there, generic Melbourne artist, we know it was you. To find the painting, police scoured the gallery from top to bottom, believing it might have been stashed somewhere behind the scenes. They scrutinised bizarre love triangles between staff and artists. They even drained the NGV's famous moat. They crawled through the air conditioning ducts of the gallery. but they came out empty-handed. <laughs> Meanwhile, the ACT's ransom notes were becoming all the more colourful. 
Dear, oh dear, race Matthews, it read. You tiresome old bag of swamp gas. You pompous fathead. The letter gave 10 p.m. Saturday as the week deadline for destroying the painting and was accompanied by a burnt match. Watching everything unfold on his Sharehouse cathode ray television set in Rundle Street in Adelaide, the young artist Andy Petrusevics had a spark. He spontaneously set to work, painting a replica. Then he painted another. He and his fellow artists painted replica after replica, using whatever they came across to slap together weeping women of various sizes, quality and precision. Within a few days, they had painted 28, and they struck a deal with Louise Douth at the Experimental Art Foundation, pictured here, to exhibit them straight away. The original painting still at large, Victoria Police swooped in on the exhibition, <laughs> closely followed by the ABC news crew. They examined every painting for the mark of authenticity. They interviewed Andy as a suspect, but they left empty-handed. Andy was not the only one who had this I'm Spartacus reaction to the theft and the commotion it caused. Chilean-Australian artist Juan de Villa immediately painted a replica and offered it to the NGV, claiming that his was the real one. I feel that Mr. Makaki has been fretting about the theft of the Picasso, he said. This donation will allow him to forget about that and turn his attention to contemporary art in Australia and the plight of young artists for so long ignored by the gallery. This is Juan de Villa holding his uh, painting, Picasso Theft, in a print that is now at the State Library. Impressively, Juan de Villa managed to paint, transport to Sydney, and exhibit the replica on the very same day that the theft was announced. That's right, the same day that the age journalist received the ransom note, phoned the gallery, who hadn't even caught wind of the theft yet, that night, Juan de Villa's perfect replica was on display in Sydney. Like the original Picasso, and also like Andy Petrusevic's replicas in Adelaide, within a short time, it too had been stolen. The gallery glass smashed in, and this one replaced with a note from a different ACT, not the Australian cultural terrorists, but this time it was artists confronting terrorism. <laughs> Students at the Victorian College of the Arts were also on the pulse. According to the painter Gareth Sampson, who was dean of the VCA at the time, 50 or so police cadets were brought in in buses to raid the students' painting studios. As police rifled through the art, a cadet gleefully held up a painting. She said. In an adjacent studio, another cadet shouted, as they discovered woman after weeping woman across the artist's studios. And the fascination with replicating the work endures. The National Gallery of Victoria chief conservator, or former chief conservator, Thomas Dixon, has a suspiciously accurate replica hanging in his Los Angeles home that was gifted to him a few years ago for his 70th birthday. This is him authenticating the painting upon its return in 1986, and 30 years later with his very own copy. The weeping woman returns again and again to haunt us, just as Patrick McKackie had predicted on the day the painting was unveiled. I mean, this face is gonna haunt Melbourne for the next 100 years or more. I'm interested in the way that artwork can haunt or become a ghost, can appear and disappear, can become a spectre of what it was intended to be. Boris Groys, in his article on art activism, speaks of the establishment of the museum after the French Revolution as a way to defunctionalize the design of the old regime, to take powerful objects out of circulation and by exhibiting them to favor their aesthetic qualities over their practical use. He likens the museum to a cemetery, 
saying that the institutional effect of the museum demonstrates the past as incurably dead. Aestheticizing objects in glass vitrines is like displaying a body in an open casket. By our viewership, we are able to confirm that the contents are truly dead and defunctionalized. To aestheticize the things of the present means to discover their dysfunctional, absurd, and unworkable character. When I talk about my decision to withdraw my work from the Sydney Biennale in 2014 over its connections to the detention industry, I often think about this, about the power and the disempowerment of art, about the tension between the expectation of art to function and to be free of function. I realise that art does not just convey and represent something by its present, but within the layered institutional and commercial workings of the culture industry, it can also be assigned new purposes. Sometimes it is used to distract or conceal from what's going on elsewhere. In this instance, used to artwash a brand connected with torture. Once I found out that Transfield was sponsoring the Biennale while at the same time negotiating a major new contract to take over the operation of the detention centres on Manus Island and Nauru, I spent a while working out in consultation with various groups and other artists in the exhibition what we should do. Well-meaning people advised me that I shouldn't withdraw my work for ethical reasons, but I should do what artists do and make a work about it. In considering this, I thought about what Boris Gross was talking about, the way that art can be depoliticized and deactivated by the very spaces and marketplaces that are made for it. Not only that, but leveraged for unrelated economic and political purposes. Although I strongly believe that art can induce that incisive and transformative moment in itself, in this instance, the withdrawal of my work was the only appropriate way I could respond to the situation. And I discovered that sometimes the absence of art can be as powerful, if not more powerful, than its presence. Take this example in 2003. In the UN Security Council building, there is a replica of Guernica, the original painting of the senseless devastation of war from which Picasso developed the weeping woman motif. In 2003, there was a meeting there of delegates at which Colin Powell, the US Secretary of State at the time, made the case to invade Iraq based on the fabricated discovery of weapons of mass destruction. For the press conference, the UN Security Council was ordered to cover up the replica of Guernica that hung on its walls with a blue curtain. Now, some people accept that the, the, that the work was covered up on the request of the press photographers. They wanted a less busy and more, how should I say, visually neutral backdrop. Others insist that, that the decision was more closely related to the fact that Mr. Powell can't very well seduce the world into bombing Iraq, surrounded on camera by shrieking and mutilated women, men, children, bulls and horses. Surprisingly, the Australian Labor politician who was representing Australia at the UN commented on the profound symbolism of the act, saying that it represented the obfuscation, the evasion, and the denial of the grim reality of military action. Whatever the intent, covering Guernica revealed a lot more than it concealed. For the global public, the act drew attention to, rather than hid, the horrific consequences of war. There are a lot of ways in which Guernica has been appropriated and revived by artists and activists, but I just wanted to mention one that was in response to this incident particularly. A Los Angeles group, artist group, recreated the painting on a huge billboard that would reveal, when illuminated at night, a glowing UN Security Council logo emerging from the pandemonium of war. In Australia, protest was brewing in response to our own participation in the same war. In this very gallery, on the very first exhibition that opened in this space, Patricia Piccinini and Tom Nicholson held a press conference where Piccinini covered her work, The Family, in a white veil as she announced that 20 preeminent artists would all cover their work if Australia went to war in Iraq. What does it mean for an artist to cover their artwork? 
How does the balance strike between being seen and not being seen, between revealing and hiding? How does the temporariness of the action, the fact that it can so easily be reversed, affect the impact of the gesture? How does it use the strictly codified rules of the gallery to upset the expectation that artists should uphold the status quo? And what happens when someone else decides to cover an artwork? Not the person who made it in the first place, but somebody else. I'm thinking, for example, of last year when a proposal to uh, remove Confederate statue, or one particular Confederate statue, um, led to a violent far-right rally. So these Confederate statues in the US commemorate the history of the seven US states in the 1800s who, that refused to abolish slavery and tried to form a separate confederacy um, because, on, based on that fact. The, the rally also attracted counter-protesters from the left who were shot at and beaten and one killed by what we could probably call white supremacists. In response, the call to remove Confederate monuments became even stronger, to remove the monuments to slave traders and segregationists, to the founders and the grand wizards of the Ku Klux Klan, monuments that continue to tell the story of a nation from the point of view of the oppressors. And so last year, while the Black Lives Matter movement was in full swing, Confederate monuments across the US were covered up and removed. Fountains were decommissioned. Plaques were unscrewed, busts relocated, lengths of highway and entire parks renamed, and statues of men on horseback covered with heavy-duty black tarps. This was not just the work of activists, but state governments and city councils came in on board too. And I wondered, what are the resonant impacts of changing the signage of a monument as opposed to covering it up, of covering it up as opposed to removing it? of removing it as opposed to vandalizing it? What remains? When is it better to start again with a different story? And when is it useful to retain the painful pieces of a history written by a powerful few? When are these objects entrenched without return in the past? And when do they still arouse the sentiments of their original intention? What action or context is most effective in demonstrating the past as incurably dead? And when does removing something begin a conversation and when does it shut it down? We have no way really of knowing what effect the removal or the concealing of America's racist history has had so far or will have. These kinds of shifts are so important and yet immeasurable. So while these groups in the States have, are moving to de-glorify their racist history, in Australia, of course, we're making small steps too. Just this year, the electorate of Batman was renamed in acknowledgement of our own disturbing colonial past. And the Batman monument in town, which reads that Batman founded a settlement on the site of Melbourne, then unoccupied, has received an addendum. An apology that reads, the city of Melbourne acknowledges that the historical events and perceptions referred to by this memorial are inaccurate. An apology is made to indigenous people and to the traditional owners of this land for the wrong beliefs of the past and the personal upset caused. Now, I won't go into anal analysis of the plaque um, because that will be another talk, um, but at the same time as these moves are being made, uh, the federal government has earmarked $5 million to constructing yet another monument to James Cook, not a captain, and $50 million to, in part, recreate the arrival of white Europeans and the beginning of genocide of indigenous people. How the construction of these monuments will be opposed or hindered, or if they get made, how they may be destroyed, removed, or vandalized is yet to be seen. Our racist colonial history persists through the stories we tell ourselves as a nation. As we memorialize stories of white glory, of discoverers, of settlers, of uh, explorers and Anzacs, we allow racism to be enacted in more violent ways, in the disproportionate incarceration of indigenous people, in the decommissioning of remote communities, in the theft of land for more coal mines, 
in the bipartisan operation of immigration detention centers. In allowing a company like Wilson Security, a firm known for its abuse of refugees and people seeking asylum, to still be our state government's number one security provider. It's how a company like Wilson Security is contracted to patrol the offshore detention prisons and then invited to clean their brand through association with our trusted cultural organisations. Many of you will see where this is heading because last year, the National Gallery of Victoria, the same one from which the Weeping Woman was stolen in 1986, began a commercial contract with Wilson Security. So the NGV's audiences, artists and members were obviously outraged and a group of us got in touch with Victorian state ministers and management at the NGV to oppose this state support of Wilson Security. We exhausted all civil and commonly accepted forms of dissent, letter writing, petitioning, um, polite meetings, media articles, but they insisted there was nothing they could do. This is some of the members of the Artist Committee, an artist collective here in Naram that I am a member of, along with some of the wonderful people here in the audience tonight, visiting the NGV and admiring Picasso's Weeping Woman. We were particularly interested in the Weeping Woman because of its history, but also because of the uncomfortable dilemma that this painting, this image of universal human suffering was being watched over by the same company that creates this very same suffering on Manus Island and Nauru. With a team of around 20 people, we stood and silently guarded the shrouded painting. Management shut down the galleries around us. The director came to see what was happening and media turned up. The Artist Committee's four actions at the NGV and the community's strong objection to the contract eventually led to the NGV, along with other notable cultural institutions in Victoria, to drop their commercial relationships with Wilson Security. Each action was planned with both the precision of a bank heist and the choreography of a piece of theatre. They were scripted, set managed. I don't know if this is like secret, top secret stuff I'm giving away here. I haven't actually consulted, but they were colourful as well. They were set designed, um, costume designed, rehearsed and documented. And they combined with the elements and the tactics of activism that are often overlooked in political art a stated set of outcomes, a buddy system, police liaisons, a codified communication system. We discussed in depth the tensions around artistic and moral integrity, the ethics of interrupting something for which we have respect, art and other artists, as well as how to enact our respect for the individual staff members while targeting the company that they work for. Constructed by artists and carried out with help from the Whistleblowers, Activists and Citizens Alliance, these acts were inspired by the rich and varied history of civil, non-violent civil disobedience. Part of that history, you know, the one that includes Gandhi and King, as well as lesser-known figures like Dorothy Day and Francis Fox Piven and Bill Moyer, part of that history includes a small, unassuming brochure published by the political scientist Jean Sharp. It's a list of 198 methods of nonviolent action. Now, because it won't, 198 methods won't fit on a screen, I've made a video of it, um, but it does, it's just to get an impression of what, they, what it includes. Um, it contains commonly practiced methods such as protest marches and strikes, as well as more obscure ideas like Lysistratic non-action, look it up, collective disappearance and mock funerals. The list reveals the tension between absence and presence, the power of 
withdrawing, destroying, removing or relocating. Whether it be money or labour or icons or clothes or sex. Artists as well as activists use these tactics to make a statement, to leverage power and to force change. The Australian cultural terrorists were not the first artists to remove art for a political statement. And this is just an aside story, but it, it has to be mentioned that Picasso was actually put on trial in 1911 for stealing the Mona Lisa. But it did turn up two years later in Italy um, and an employee of the Louvre admitted to wanting to repatriate the painting and so Picasso was acquitted. Unofficial art history is full of artists stealing art. The artist Ule, of Ule and Abramovich fan, uh, fame, made a work in 1986 called There is a Criminal Element to Art. It begins at the New National Gallery in Berlin, where Hitler's favourite artwork, The Poor Poet, was hanging. Ule walked in in broad daylight. He took the painting off the wall and he ran. said that he wanted this action to start a discussion about the institutionalization of art and about the exclusion and marginalization of art institutions. And by placing the iconic German painting on the wall of a migrant family's living room to bring into the discussion the discrimination that was happening against Turkish migrant workers. Was it successful? Well, it depends what you would call success or whether you would even consider success an appropriate measure to apply to an artwork. But say you're looking at an artwork in terms of outcomes or impact. The newspaper reports that say Madman steals Germany's most beautiful painting suggest that maybe his political aims did not reach the broader public. That rather than agitating for the rights of migrant workers and weaving that into a conversation about um, the institution of art, Ule's stunt may not have permeated beyond the realm of art. As clever as it was as an artwork, it is perhaps easy to ignore the crux of what he was trying to do. I'd like for a moment to zoom in on The Poor Poet, the painting by Karl Spitzweg, Spitzweg that Ule stole. The Poor Poet depicts a cold but inspired artist in his attic, surrounded by uh, books seemingly writing his next masterpiece. It's such a romantic idea of art, this impoverished genius, working alone, producing masterpieces. Hang on, what's that there in the fireplace? Oh, it's just his next masterpiece that he's burning to stay warm. When Ule said he wanted to talk about the institutionalizing of art, this painting displays an important inequity that institutions rely on and perpetuate. Thank you, Aka, for paying me appropriately for this talk. By the way, I just thought I should put that in there. This painting venerates the image of the struggling artist. The very conditions that keep marginalised and less privileged artists from entering and becoming canonised by the institution is clearly represented here. The need to be poor, but privileged. Perhaps for some, this was a tenable or acceptable situation. Artists were able to commit to unpaid labour and live in a hovel for next to nothing. After all, we know that Helen Garner wrote Monkey Grip on the doll. But today, with Domain.com advising landowners that they can cash in on an emerging cohort of young Melburnians living in inner-city backyards, yes, they can charge the homeless rent. The conditions of creative labour under rampant capitalism have never have put artists and many other workers under great strain. That's not to say that the social and the economic benefit of artists' work hasn't been documented and understood in terms that can be appreciated by even those who know nothing about art. Policymakers understand it all too well, and yet this myth of the impoverished artist persists. But Instead of fulfilling that mythology, we artists have become the shining beacon of isolated neoliberal labour, working for less and less, 
undercutting ourselves and each other at every turn, fueling our creative work from the income of a patchwork of other precarious jobs. How are artists supposed to maintain a radical and challenging practice if we're too overrun to support ourselves and each other? That's right, I've sucked you in with an unsolved mystery and now I'm going to talk about labour rights. While we see ourselves as some of the most progressive and enlightened people, the arts is populated by conservative voices and customs. Our spaces are governed by unspoken decorum, and this seeps into the way we negotiate our business. Art world rhetoric is rife with notions of risk, with funding bodies encouraging risk-taking new work, festivals declaring no risk too great, and galleries inviting and supporting artists to take risks. But what are they really speaking about? Risk to the body? Risk of being hurt? Risk to the artist's reputation? Risk of losing their job? Risk of being arrested? Today, artists are afraid of losing an opportunity or burning bridges. They feel they can't afford to stick their neck out. But there is so much really at stake if we don't. If there is no space for independent, progressive and, and critical art, no space for art created by communities not driven by trends and marketplaces, then all of our cultural narratives become about affirming the interests of a powerful few. So what are artists doing to ensure that they can claim the autonomy to create diverse narratives, to challenge stale and outdated politics, to critique and agitate society, both within and outside of the arts? Well, time and time again, we take on these struggles but we suffer amnesia when it comes to these things. How many of you know about this, this in um, 1984? None? This was a protest at the 1984 Sydney Biennale outside the Art Gallery of New South Wales by the group Affirmative Action for Women in the Visual Arts, a proponent of the New South Wales Arts Workers Union. Today, Elvis Richardson's Countess picks up where they left off to continue to fight for gender equality in the arts. Around the same time, under the vice presidency of artist Megan Evans, the art committee of the Operative Painters and Decorators Union established an award rate for artists. That's right, an award rate for artists in Australia and a percent for art scheme, where 1% of all new building projects would have to go towards the commissioning of new artwork. These schemes were scrapped by successive governments, of course, which is why we are where we are now. But in 2004, we saw sit-ins in galleries all around the country as part of the No to Nothing campaign, which is part of why we get artist fees at all today. But Today, many artists feel we don't have the time or money to agitate. We keep our heads down, we keep working, we get another job, we say yes to everything. After all, it might lead to the next big opportunity. We care about the bigger picture, of course, but do we have time to make work and care? And this is exactly where we've been put. Why George Brandis tried to silence critique when he threatened to pull funding from anyone who complained about dodgy sponsorship. Why Turnbull denounced the vicious ingratitude of artists who withdrew their work from the Biennale. Why funding for independent artists and small arts organisations has been moved to the heritage arts like opera and ballet. Why our funding bodies and state institutions are presided over by the uninspired and corrupt. Bankers, miners and commercial lawyers who help them get away with it. That's why mining fat cat Sam Walsh has the most powerful job in the arts in Australia. Before he became the chair of the Australia Council for the Arts just this year, he left mining company Rio Tinto under a cloud of controversy and is currently under investigation for corruption. What a larrikin. So while the cost of a postage stamp has tripled since 1986 and other industries rallied against exploitation, in the arts, a silence has fallen, a taboo around payment and working conditions. The sector's primary producers earn under the poverty line for their creative work. Artists report feeling fearful to ask if the job that they've agreed to is paid. In-kind labor is the norm. Exposure gives you nothing but sunburn. 
Successful artists go into debt to subsidise the work that is commissioned by major institutions. Everybody wants artworks and festivals and public programs, but the artists are the ones who end up paying for it. No wonder one of Australia's most successful and important contemporary artists, Fiona Foley, announced last, year, last, week, last month that she can no longer work as an artist because the conditions are so poor. No wonder many women who have children find they can no longer justify a practice that drains whatever they can earn from their other jobs. No wonder there is an exodus of artists from the industry, especially among artists without existing privilege, whether relating to race, gender, class, or ability. I have some of that privilege. Here are my cards. I'm white, I'm educated, I have a house to live in. It's got me this far. But what are the ethics of participating in an industry that is predicated by privilege? I have that privilege and I feel like I'm just about to quit. I know, Hannah Gadsby has done it before, but it's not just a clever device. It goes to show that we are all fed up for loads of interconnected reasons. My practice, like many others, is curtailed by diminishing funding and non-existent arts policy that leaves us feeling demoralised and isolated. I know, it looks pathetic. A whinging artist who hasn't quite made it, right? That's what you're thinking. And that's what I think a lot of the time too. But then a group of artists here in Naram made Artslog. It's an online database of working conditions in the arts in Australia. And while it does reinforce the demoralised feeling, it also shows that we are not alone, that this is an industrial, not a personal problem. Artslog allows artists to log and describe the conditions under which they have created and displayed work, both the good and the bad experiences. It gives shape and form to the countless reports and inquiries and surveys that all show that this is a sector in crisis. It shows that rather than seeing ourselves as individuals who have failed, we need to see the failures of the workplace. And we need to see ourselves as a workforce. And if we do, then the strategies of industrial action that workers have successfully employed time and time again become available to us in our struggle to achieve fair working conditions. Strategies like an art strike. The question of an art strike was proposed by Alain Geoffroy in his 1968 essay, What is to be done about art? Then in 1970, New York artists gathered for the artist strike against racism, sexism, repression and war. It was a strike against these political conditions, but also about how they intersected with the arts. Adrienne Piper withdrew her work and replaced it with a statement. I submit its absence as evidence of the inability of art expression to have meaningful existence under conditions other than those of peace, equality, truth, trust, and freedom. Then autodestructive artist Gustav Metzger proposed three years without art to sever the links between art and capitalism in 1977. In the 1990s, British wannabe artist Stuart Holm pontificated extensively about an art strike that never really happened. There have been plenty of solo attempts like this at starting a strike, but they are more often constant, uh, constant concerned with symbolic and abstract goals of an individual rather than concrete movement building. In France, however, where I grew up, strike culture is thoroughly embedded in work culture, and this applies to the arts as well. Artists frequently shut down galleries and theatres and festivals, they cancel shows and they occupy spaces. And it didn't just happen in the 70s. In, it happened across the country in 2003, in 2007, and again in 2013. So what are they striking for? Well, workers in the arts in France, precisely those who clock up 507 hours of, of fragmentary artistic work in 10 months, are entitled to an artist's wage. This artist's wage has been part of France's cultural landscape since 1936, and today over 250,000 artists and arts workers in France are supported by the artist's wage. In our own corner of the world, we've seen the impact of artists' non-participation the generative no that withdrawal, when done properly, can produce. 
When nine of us withdrew our work from the Sydney Biennale, Transfield, the company against whom the boycott was directed, crumbled. Shareholders withdrew their shares. Superannuation funds divested. They were forced to change their name, and they were bought out by a Spanish company who very quickly announced that they would be ending their contract on Manus Island and Nauru. And there are countless personal refusals that go unnoticed and unpublished. Principled artists choosing the powerful act of non-participation in reaction to things like political complicity, misguided leadership or censorship. So in many ways, artists have shown their capacity to respond to wider political concerns. But what happens when they apply this to their own conditions? While there are so many urgent political issues to address, the diversity of our sector, the accessibility of art as a career and also to, to diverse audiences, the, and the ability of artists to be critical and autonomous and responsive to wider public issues relies on us being able to be artists. So a few years ago, Australian artist David Pledger called for us to consider a national art strike, but it, has no, it hasn't so far culminated in any action. I think that there is something in it that we should return to. I think that we are ready for that strike. So I want you to think about how an art strike could work today. What would it look like? How long would it go for? How much planning time would we need? What would be our demands? How could institutions and publications and radio stations show support or even participate in the strike? How do we use our skills as artists uh, to make our presence as well as our absence felt? What would be most effective? What would be noticed? Gustav Metzger said the minimum period required to cripple the system is three years, whilst a longer period of time would create difficulties for artists. We neither wish to cripple the system nor create difficulties for artists, but the situation does need to become more inconvenient and more uncomfortable before it can change. Decision makers have until now not been compelled to take action. By removing what we make from the public realm, by refusing to exhibit or perform or speak publicly or write about what we do, the value of our labour can be understood. Every part of the sector will be forced to examine how they participate and how they can change to ensure that artists are able to take risks and work autonomously and help shape society. The whole thing, of course, needs to be workshopped and developed collaboratively, and the Artists Committee will be facilitating these discussions over the coming months. I can see your minds ticking over now with what ifs and what abouts. That's great. We'd like people of all disciplines in the same struggle to be part of the conversation. And if you want to be part of it, please come and see me um, afterwards. Principled political and industrial action always has, uh, attracts outspoken critics, and this one will be no different. But we are workers, and we are a workforce, and we should be paid for our labour. We shouldn't have to burn our manuscripts to stay warm. So, to conclude, back to the weeping woman. 16 days after the painting first went missing, it was returned via a locker at Spencer Street train station. The thieves have still not been found, and thank goodness this is Melbourne's best kept secret, because if they are, they still face life in prison. While their escapade went down in history, the underlying mission of the theft is often overlooked and appears in hindsight to have been unsuccessful. I'm pretty sure that the painting, although one of the demands was initially agreed to, it was revoked and it was returned with none of the demands met. Race Matthews, the former arts minister who was the target of the ransom notes, told me over tea and cake that the heist definitely increased his empathy for the plight of local contemporary artists, but that no concrete changes were made to policy or financing of the arts. And because of this, the sentiment of the mission remains absolutely legitimate. And so it is up to us to find new creative ways to articulate the value and the importance of our work and the depth of our discontent. So go ahead, enter the gallery and choose which work you'd like to steal. No, just, just joking, just joking. Um, we probably won't be encouraging serious crime even though the spirit of the thieves' ransom demand is more relevant today than ever before. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you, Gabrielle. That was really um, such an amazing talk. Um, we do have time for a few questions if anyone would like to um, contribute or ask something to Gab. That was a great talk. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, do you think the plight of artists has sort of, you, you, in your lecture, is very much like you see a very critical moment right now that it's worse than it ever was before? But do you kind of feel that the plight of artists has always been the sort of almost the same? I mean, there's, there's always been famous artists and there are now as well, but sort of the, the, the starving artist is a truth and a reality and has been throughout the ages. Yeah, and I think there's always been kind of pushbacks against that, you know, like when the Salon des Refusés was established to kind of create a new exhibition space, for example, of all the artists' artwork that had been refused from the, you know, the, the academy. So there's always, um, yeah, that stardom and the pushback against it. But I think that today, more and more, the kind of art that festivals and institutions are seeking are those... Um, community-based art, the temporary art, and they and there is there are more and more opportunities um, for artists of all from the whole kind of spectrum of success to um, create cultural product, and yet that proliferation hasn't seen a proliferation of um, like real um, re remuneration for those artists. Yeah, so so I think you're right. There, it has always been there, but I think that that. Um, we're much more aware of how much we want this cultural product, um, but how little we're willing to pay for it. Thanks so much, Gabrielle, for today um, and your amazing talk. Um, I've just got a question uh, around your position around the expansion of the creative industries and how the artist's role might be completely usurped if there was a strike by designers and other um, creative workers, because I think that this is a big issue that needs to be addressed in the flipping over of Arts Victoria to Creative Victoria, for example. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really tentative about calling it an industry, but then, and I'm actually in two minds about that because at the same, because I'm urging us to be seen as workers, of course, but, um, but yeah, many people push back against kind of seeing it as an industry. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, so are you anticipating that even with the absence of artists from the creative industries, that they that it, it will be filled? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and expanding it into other kind of um, design services. Mm. Well. Hmm. Yeah, um, I think that the strike shouldn't be isolated just to visual artists, firstly. Like, I think that we need to tap into a broad idea of the arts that includes, you know, I guess traditional arts like theatre and dance and music. And I think that um, we all have kind of different variations of the struggle that I'm describing that kind of interconnect. We're, we can't kind of isolate ourselves from that. And I do think that... that um, in the, the public image of those arts and the sanctity of, of those arts um, has weight. But, yeah, I, I think that that's something we definitely have to consider is how, how, you know, the withdrawal of maybe, you know, 10 artists that are exhibiting at the NGV, what kind of impact that will make. And I think that that will probably come down to communication strategy, actually. To You know, you saw nine artists out of 94 artists withdrew from the Sydney Biennale and we weren't even, like, the most important ones. Like, we were pretty, you know, we were, we were pretty minor artists and I think that's, that still the symbolism of withdrawing that is really weighty. I, I think I'm wondering, like, 
that um, we need other creative industries, workers, to now acknowledge the artists. So mm -hmm. I'm saying architects, uh, you know, coders, the people who are now getting funding through the Creative, creative, creative Victoria, mm. that they need to stand in solidarity. Absolutely. So I'm just thinking, how, do, how can we jam this, this, this thing where creativity, the creative arts, mm. or Creative um, Victoria, that funding program, is there another way we can take it? Yeah, potentially. Does anyone else have anything to say on that? But I think that that's a really good question to ask and one, like, these questions need to be discussed collaboratively and, yeah, in, in a group. But do you have any thoughts on how we would do that? Well, I, I guess yeah. I, think, I think we need to, we need, we need to actually talk to um, the broader, I mean, it is an industry. Mm. Uh, well, that's the way it's being framed in the policies. Yeah, yeah. I think we've got to start with other the other creative fields as well, so that they are probably the closest adjacent fields to the arts. Mm. And then we need to start there mm. yeah. and get their support. Yeah. Otherwise, I think I'm really concerned the arts is going to be eradicated and it's going to be written out of policies, and it's going to be instrumentalised. So mm. art being used um, for placemaking or problem solving or social and and not used as a as a pure form. Mm. to pose really provocative questions back to our society. I'm mm. concerned design it, it, art will become a design form if we're not careful. Yeah, yeah. And I guess we have to be careful not to make ourselves obsolete in the process of a strike. Yeah. Um, I guess I've been thinking about this a lot myself and um, how lots of different industries are having lots of funding cut, not just creative industries, but more broadly. And um, I'm wondering what you think of like creating a, having a voice for everyone broadly, not just creative industries and like, you know, what are we asking for? Are we asking for like a minimum standard of living or, mm. you know, like what, how do you want to be supported and what does that look like? Or is it a basic minimum income or? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it's not this kind of isolated scenario. It's kind of all part of the collapse of the modern social state, isn't it? And so it does tie in with other precarious labor and standards of living and the price of rent and everything like that. So those things definitely need to be taken into consideration when we talk about it. Um, like I haven't, devised a set of demands yet, but a lot of people have spoken about, well, is it all these kind of like different policy thing, policy elements that come together and demands for institutions and, or do we just ask for an artist's wage as a trial period for a universal basic income? Do we actually want to be totally idealistic like that and aim for what an ideal scenario would be or is it about kind of just shifting, you know, artists' fees by 50% or something. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it does need to be interconnected into all those issues. Well, thank you so much. Um, and if you'd like to uh, talk to Gabrielle afterwards, feel free to come forward. And I really look forward to see um, how the, this work continues. Uh, please join me in thanking Gabrielle for her talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.